Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Faith and I just returned from uh, taking Joel to Texas to study philosophy. An odd phrase, if you think about it. Uh, Texas may not mean much to you Missourians, but for me, Texas holds all sorts of ambiguity, good and bad, which I cannot completely separate. Uh, The brand of Christianity I inherited was Texan. Uh, James Robison was the Texas evangelist. He came to our high school, I guess it was in the late 60s, and this sort of determined my path. And this Christianity then came fused with nationalism, with civic pride, with Texas peculiar independence. And I've been trying, or I've been left trying, to sort out New Testament Christianity from Texas religion uh, ever since I became a Christian. And I'm not sure that I ever have fully escaped Texas, or even that I completely want to. And so my topic for today, if you'll turn, is to uh, reading from Hebrews 13, 11 to 14. Uh, we have no enduring city, not even in Texas. Uh, as Christians, we believe that in time, uh, we believe that rather that Christ has uh, intersected, you know, time with eternity, that there is a kind of apocalyptic event in the life of Christ. And if that's the case, then the question arises, where do we see the enduring consequences of this intersection? Where can we look to find the enduring impact of Christ upon culture and society? And this is both a big picture question, uh, but it is also a very personal kind of existential question. Where can we trace God's providential working in history writ large, but where can we find God definitively working in our own lives without admixture, as in my case with Texas religion or admixture with evil, in fact? Human culture has certainly been impacted at various points and by various means, but I believe culture is not itself an enduring medium. Cultures come and go. So that the enduring redemption of Christ is not to be found in enduring human social structures or in the cities of this world. And so as the verse I'm about to read puts it, we have no enduring city. Let's read then from Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us us go out to him outside the camp 
bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And so what is a city other than a particular social arrangement, a hierarchy, an institution, an enduring structural entity? Is there no enduring city? And the primary argument or counter, the exhibit and a counter argument might be Christendom. Uh, the fusion of church and state and that arose with Constantine and which produced what seemed to be a new form of culture and lasted for thousands of, you know, over a thousand years. And Christendom has given us, it could be argued, many good things, right? We have the rule of law, a new improved moral compass. The, you know, modern medicine arises, the hospital, artistic achievements, scientific and technical achievements. All of this came attached with a new understanding with, of human dignity. You know, we have not completely across the board, but the ending of various forms of slavery, wherever Christendom went. At the same time, and in many times directly connected to the specific advances, are the moral failures of Christendom that were as astonishing as its advances. And so we have the Inquisitions, we have genocides, we have uh, rampant anti-Semitism. We have, yes, new technical achievements, but also new technical means to slaughter, to torture, in the name sometimes of doctrinal purity. People are burned at the stake. All of this adds to the case that the light, that Christendom, that is the fusion of church and state, that the light that it produced was not worth the candle it required. And so two things to note about Christendom. First, it failed. The churches of Europe are emptied. Modern atheism and agnosticism reign wherever Christendom was strongest. Maybe we could say Christendom failed largely due to the weight of corruption and evil that it produced. Nowhere more so than in the 20th century. And so the modern period is post-Christian, or at least post-Christendom. The church no longer shares in political power, and maybe that's a good thing, right? And the majority in most of the Western world do not count themselves Christian. There was a time when just being born in the West, you could not conceive of yourself as anything other than being a good Christian. So it may seem that as Christians we are left with nothing to cling to. Certainly we have no enduring city, no enduring political structure, no social organization in which we can find ourselves at home. And isn't this precisely the point of the writer of Hebrews? This is the way perhaps that it's supposed to be. We find ourselves outside of every city 
every system of power. But the question that arises, well, what is left for us? And that's what the writer outlines. I believe in the early part of the chapter. He says, let love of the brethren continue. Up in verse 1. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this we have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Their conduct. Imitate their faith. The conclusion? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The cultures of this world are passing away, but Christ Jesus does not change. Do not be carried away, he says, by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. So, I believe that's what we have. That's the the bare minimum that we can cling to. We can love each other. We can welcome strangers. We can visit the prisoners. We should attend to our marriages. We should avoid the valuation system of money and the love of money. And notice this is no small thing as the alternative is love to love of money is to trust in Christ. Those seems to be the paired alternatives. The temptation for the Hebrews may have been to return to Jewish tradition and the settled and you know established structures of Judaism. The writer concludes, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So where Christianity coalesces into settled structures with hierarchies which can produce safety for the majority, perhaps this is precisely when it is not Christianity any longer. Where Christians are bound to institutions, political or social orders, isn't it at that point that they are clinging to the cities of man The eschatological city, the apocalyptic city breaking into this world, is not from this world. The guerrilla band gathered outside the city is the only place that the city from God can be enjoyed. And the eschatological break with the world is an ongoing condition. All things are continually being made new, Paul says. We are strangers and pilgrims, aliens in this world. You know, think of the confrontation of Christ with Pilate. The Jews had coalesced into a single body. 
uniting themselves even with Rome, crying out, we have no king but Caesar. They had concluded one man must die that the nation might be saved. They had caved in to the logic of empire. In this logic, we need to continually be offering up human sacrifice outside the walls of the city where the church has wed itself to secular power it has needed its various pilots in the same way that the Jews needed Pilate needed the strong arm of Rome the Jew must die in order that the nation would be saved the Muslim must die that we may give, be given our safety. The stranger, the alien, the poor, the naked, you get the idea, they must be sacrificed in the logic of empire. Don't we need Pilate? Don't we need Rome? Don't we need America to harbor us safely inside the city? Christ demonstrates and explains that his kingdom is precisely not dependent upon the power to kill, but on the power to endure the cross, the humiliation, the violence that this world mets out. And we are called to meet him outside of those structures and those powers and that violence. Outside of the city, precisely because of this orientation to violence in the city. We all certainly depend upon others. And so I'm not, the argument is not here for some sort of individualism. We depend upon the group. We depend even upon the city. The point, the choice is not between no city, you know, and and, and, uh, the city here. No, it's between two kinds of cities, two kinds of cultures. We depend upon the city of God, though, for our well-being and our identity, So scripture does not deny us this need. What is happening in Hebrews is the call then to this new city, a new family, a new country, a kingdom. And this unshakable city and identity is no longer dependent upon the metting out of power against death in the way of the world. Rather, it is the resurrection faith which has conquered, conquered death. It does not factor in death. It does not factor in shame as part of the medium of exchange. So the call is to bear reproach with Christ outside the city, outside the structures uh, that are actually defined in you know, this closing section. The way in which one escapes you know, and meets Christ outside the city well, love characterizes this life. And this is conjoined with hospitality, welcoming strangers, visiting prisoners, having enduring marriages, uh, sexual morality. These are the things that mark the people outside the city. Love of money or earthly possessions is to be replaced by a direct reliance on God. A different form of sustenance. We have an altar that is not available to others. And we are enabled then to be sustained. To eat, literally, the writer uses the phrase. We are in pursuit then 
of a revolutionary set of values. And the presumption is that we are enabled to participate in this alternative economy because of who Christ is. Christ is the priest. He's the king who mediates and rules in this new kingdom. This city of God is it's a counterintuitive sort of place. You know, this the writer throughout this section of Romans is describing, you know, Moses refuses the privilege of being counted a son of Pharaoh. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing ill treatment uh, rather than the passing pleasures of sin, the writer says. Considering the, and he says he does this because of Christ, because of the reproach of Christ. It's greater than the riches, than the treasures of Egypt. It says, for he was looking forward to this city which we have now begun to receive. He's calling us to do what Moses did and to go through this transvaluation. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. And it seems the only genuine proclamation of the gospel involves a contrariness toward the settled, respectable, institutions of this world by faith Noah being warned by God he goes on to say uh, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith by faith Abraham when he was called obeyed going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And of course, throughout here, the idea is that this alternative kingdom stands in condemnation of the kingdoms of this world. This alternative kingdom does not necessarily have uh, a clearly defined destiny. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The peasant Jesus explains to the aristocratic pilot that his kingdom is not from this world. Paul continually warns not to be bound by the principalities and powers of this world. Jesus tells us to give away all that we have, to forgive 70 times 7. And he compares the capacity of a rich man to enter into heaven to the likelihood that a camel can pass through the eye of a needle. The writer of Hebrews depicts Judaism and now Christianity as subversive, as upsetting. It's upsetting to Babel, to Egypt, to the orders of human power. Christ and Paul and the New Testament describe a faith that is not bound by law, by social expediency, by established religion, or by human government. 
My kingdom is not from this world, Jesus explains. So this city founded on faith is characterized by the reversal, I believe, of the role of shame and death. Christ despised the shame. He endured the shame. The way in which he did that and which we are to do that is through resurrection faith. Abraham endured the shame, the writer says, of childlessness and homelessness, looking for a better country, an alternative city. That which Fort Joseph foresaw, you know, he goes through all the patriarchs of, of Israel. That the exodus from Egypt, that all of this is actually looking forward to what the Christ, the kingdom that he's given us. We're receiving a kingdom that he he says that cannot be shaken. This kingdom is not subject to decay, death, removal. It is not subject to religious change. The change of the high priest, political change, the change of the king. Rome has fallen, Babylon has fallen, Syria is no more. Kingdom after kingdom has fallen. And that Jesus, the priest king, is the same yesterday and today and forever. So if we consider what value is being exchanged in the economy of the world, I believe it's always the same value. It's always a value gauged against death. Power itself is rendered powerful in that it enables one to secure themselves against the encroachment of shame and death. Wealth and power, you know, in the first century, maybe even today, would be equated with a a patron, a client state. Those who are wealthy and powerful would receive the greatest honor. And this honor is gained on the number of those clients who fall under their care. The danger, I believe, is that we would enslave ourselves again to the patronage of the world. So the concepts of being faithful in the midst of hostility, not putting Christ to shame, and this is really what he's arguing because they're being persecuted. Uh, They need to go out and bear that reproach with Christ. Go outside the city gates. Uh, We need to exchange one economy for another. And the Hebrew writer wants to show that Jesus endured the same suffering and shameful mistreatment. He said, you've not shed blood yet. No one's lost their life. But this enduring of reproach is a cleansing of sin. So whether they're persecution, we don't know. Was it physical? Was it verbal? Was it exile? Was it confiscation of property? Whatever it was, the writer says, you must be willing to give up everything since the Son gave up all for them. So the gospel breaks into history as a kind of disruption of the normal course of history. Not only the Jewish religion was upset, subverted, but every cult, every religion is subverted. And understand when we say cult, religion... These were always directly tied to the social and political power structures. By the same token, the wisdom and philosophy of the ancient world coalesced and supported these structures. Greek philosophy in its various forms, 
I hope my daughter learns this. Uh, venerated the city of man. Socrates dies rather than to be cast outside the city. The gospel overturns this philosophical orientation, this religious or- orientation. And in the wake of Christendom, it seems we realize it continually overturns the expectation that we found stability, that we found a city, that we found a place we can cling to. As Paul describes it, the resurrection erased all sacred, social, racial, sexual, and national boundaries. Christ subdued all the political and spiritual agencies, the principalities and powers, the thrones and dominions, the God of this world, he calls it. Salvation in Christ is a complete liberation, not only from the constraints of the stoica, the elementary existence, but also from the very power of law. Both Hebrews and Paul describe the most powerful of institutions, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic religion as insufficient. Read here in, uh, in uh, the next section of Hebrews. Uh, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Sorry, that was Hebrews chapter 12, 18 to 24. So Christianity is primarily the announcement of a new kingdom, of a new city. And this new kingdom breaking into, invading the normal course of time and history. Christianity so reverses the sacred truths of the established religion that Christianity was considered irreligious. It was considered atheistic. The Christians did not uphold Rome at first. And where this apocalyptic vision is traded for a settled way of life with its own institutions and structures, you know, whatever you call it, Roman, English, American, Texan, Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, or dare we say it, simply Christian, then it seems we have entered a new sort of Christendom. One world must be relinquished, given up, abandoned. And I assume this is a prolonged process that we're still part of. This lifestyle of departure, going outside the city, marks an authentic follower of the one who calls us to join him outside the city gates. Let's sing our hymn of
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.